0: You're listening to Inside Time. Journalism. Analysis. Insight. Delivered to you daily. All the stuff in your home that might contain PFAs, forever chemicals. By Jeffrey Kluger. If you put on a pair of soft contact lenses this morning, you took a greater risk than you might realize. Soft lenses seem very eye-friendly. They're smooth, comfortable, allow oxygen to reach the eye, and, if they're disposable, they don't give bacteria any time to grow. What's not to like? Well, one very important thing, actually. According to tests commissioned by the consumer watchdog site Mama Vation and the Green Group Environmental Health News, A random sampling of 18 popular brands of soft lenses sent to an environmental protection agency, EPA-certified lab, all tested positive for PFAs, short for per- and polyfluoral alkyl substances, also known as forever chemicals, because that's pretty much how long they linger in the environment. These persistent manufacturing chemicals exist in more than 12,000 forms and have been linked by the EPA to a long list of health effects including decreased fertility, high blood pressure in pregnant people, increased risk of certain cancers, developmental delays and low birth weight in children, hormonal disruption, high cholesterol, reduced effectiveness of the immune system, and more. Not any level of PFAs exposure will lead to these health consequences, of course, and even heavy exposure does not necessarily mean that you're going to get sick. Putting in your contact lenses every morning is not a sure road to cancer or high cholesterol. But enough of these ills have turned up in enough people exposed to PFAs that the EPA and the larger community of scientists are justifiably worried about them, especially because of their persistence in the environment. This entire class of chemicals is probably the most persistent class of man-made chemicals that have ever been made, says Scott Belcher, an associate professor of biological sciences at North Carolina State University, who was a scientific advisor for the contact lens study. Once they're there, they're not going away. PFAs are included in uncounted products from clothing to furniture to pizza boxes to food wrappers to cooking utensils to electronics to firefighting foam to shoes and much, much more. The chemicals are used to make pots and pans non-stick, textiles more durable and stain-resistant, food packaging resistant to grease, shoes and clothing water-resistant, and paper and cardboard stronger, among multiple other uses. So widespread is the planet's PFAs load that, according to one 2022 study in Environmental Science and Technology, the chemicals actually fall from the sky in rain, with the clouds having picked up PFAs in water evaporating from contaminated oceans. Every raindrop has PFAs in it, says Belcher. It is really earth-shaking for me and eye-opening for folks. For most people, however, everyday life inside their homes is where they're most likely to encounter PFAs on a regular basis. Here is a non-exhaustive list of some personal possessions and parts of your household that are exposing you to forever chemicals. Body care products including shampoo, dental floss, toilet paper, tampons, and pads. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, CDC, lists many products in these product categories as harboring PFAs, which are added to the products because the chemicals make them more durable, water-resistant, or smoother spreading. But those qualities come at a price. Some of the products, like dental floss and shampoo, are used in the mouth or near the eyes, mucous membranes that readily absorb contaminants. Multiple brands of both floss and shampoo now advertise themselves as PFAs free and the number of such products is growing. In February, Momovation and Environmental Health News conducted a study of PFAs in menstrual care products including tampons, pads, sanitary napkins, and period underwear and found most of them contaminated to one degree or another with the forever chemicals. Mamavation is not a scientific organization, but a self-established wellness site, and Leia Sagetti, its founder and editor, is not a scientist, but an author and consumer activist. Still, she conducts her PFA studies only in conjunction with certified labs. In March, a study published in Environmental Science and Technology Letters found PFAs in most brands of toilet paper sold around the world— A huge problem in the U.S. where over 19 billion pounds of waste paper are flushed away annually, posing a massive disposal and wastewater-contaminating problem. A bidet eliminates the problem of toilet paper almost entirely, though most U.S. households are not equipped with them. Beauty products including nail polish and eye makeup Nail polish can leach stray PFAs into the mouth when people eat a meal or bite their nails, and mascara is applied directly to the region around the eyes, contaminating them the same way contact lenses do. Yes, there's a downside to eliminating PFAs from eye makeup, says Eric Olson, Senior Strategic Director for the Natural Resources Defense Council. Without it, your mascara would run, but I think if you actually presented people with a choice, a lot of them would decide not to use the PFAs in their products. Not wearing makeup at all is, of course, another solution. Cell phones. You handle them all day, and they're just teeming with PFAs. You may not be able to touch the circuit boards, semiconductors, and insulated wiring that use PFAs, but you certainly touch the screen, which has PFAs coating to resist fingerprints. The bad news, it's not just mucous membranes that can pick up PFAs. A 2020 study in Food and Chemical Toxicology determined that PFAs molecules can be absorbed through the skin. That's especially true of the shorter-chain PFAs molecules, which infiltrate skin surfaces and ultimately the bloodstream more efficiently than longer-chain ones. None of this was considered or at least shared with the public when the phones were being designed and marketed. Honestly, says Olson, I think there was no scrutiny of this problem and no disclosure of the presence of PFAs in cell phones required. Mattress pads They're soft, they're comfy, and you spend an average of 8 hours a day laying on them, separated only by a sheet. If PFAs chemicals can penetrate the skin, they are easily small enough to make it through the pores of a woven sheet. It's the stain and moisture resistance PFAs provide that explains what they're doing in the pads, but that comes at a price. Another Momovation study found up to 807 parts per million of PFAs in multiple brands of mattress covers. How bad is that? Very bad. PFAs are extremely toxic at doses as low as parts per trillion or quadrillion, says Olson. Wall paint It's tough, it's water-resistant, and it's manufactured to last. That's the sweet spot for PFAs. One study at Duke University last year found PFAs in 6 of 10 popular paint brands sampled. The study also determined that in some brands there was off-gassing of PFAs, which reduces the overall concentration of the chemical in the paint on the wall, but disperses it into the air where it can be inhaled. And speaking of the air... Household dust. If PFAs are getting into your home through furniture, fabrics, electronics, personal care products, and more, and they are, they're not going to stay put. Fabrics, especially, are notorious spreaders of PFAs into the air, and what gets into the air gets into your lungs. House dust is a source of contamination, and we're becoming increasingly aware of it through research, says Belcher. One study, published in 2017 in Chemosphere, found lint a source for PFAs-contaminated dust. Another, conducted last year by investigators at Yale University and published in Current Environmental Health Reports, sampled residences, work environments, and child care centers and found PFAs were ubiquitous both in the air and on surfaces. Dust collected from the top of door frames or windows or from carpets can be used to infer a person's exposure to pollutants in the air, said Crystal Pollitt, an assistant professor of epidemiology at the Yale School of Public Health and senior author of the study, in a statement. Settled dust, the researchers stress, is especially dangerous for infants and children who spend extended time on floors where they may inhale or ingest the PFA's contamination. One straightforward solution is to keep your house as clean as possible. The best thing for dust is to clean it up, says Sagetti. You need to get rid of it as much as you possibly can, especially if you have little children because those babies are far more vulnerable to the persistent chemicals than we are as adults. Carpeting Many carpets are designed to be stain and water resistant, and the chemicals used to give them those properties are filled with PFAs. According to one report from the Washington State Department of Health, up to 90% of carpets on the market that were tested had detectable levels of PFAs in them. In 2019, Home Depot announced it would no longer sell carpets containing PFAs, and other retailers have followed suit. But Carpeting is not the kind of purchase consumers make every year, and most homes still have carpets that were laid down before the switchover began. It's not just the carpets that contain PFAs, it's the padding underneath. In 2021, Momovation conducted a lab study of two new brands of carpeting and found them PFAs-free, but the rubbery padding did not fare so well. No one's looking into the padding, says Segeti. Carpeting's getting better, but the padding... That's still a problem. Food All manner of food packaging, from plastics to grease-resistant paper to pizza boxes, are loaded with PFAs, and what gets into the packaging can leach into the food. Most consumers are aware that food packaging can be problematic, but what they might not know about is the risk of fresh foods like fish and dairy products. PFA's pollution is widespread in both the oceans and freshwater lakes and rivers where it readily contaminates the flesh of fish. According to one study published in March in Environmental Research, consuming a single serving of freshwater fish could be the equivalent of a month's worth of drinking water contaminated with PFOS, perfluorooctane sulfonic acid, an especially toxic form of PFAs at above the level of 0.02 parts per trillion PPT, which is what the EPA has established as a safe threshold for PFOs. Dairy products are less risky. Last year, the Department of Health and Human Services conducted a study of milk samples from 13 different cattle farms around the country and concluded that in all but one sample, the PFA's level were below detection limits. One caveat, though, the milk that was studied came directly from the cows. Supermarket milk could be picking up PFAs from the plastic bottles or plasticized paper in which it's packaged. Yoga Pants and Sports Bras After conducting its tests into menstrual products, Mamavation started testing women's exercise wear, and the results have been troubling. Roughly 25% of the Yoga Pants-tested had PFAs in the crotch area, likely to control moisture. As with the menstrual products, this is a particular problem since the vaginal area is highly vascularized, making it especially sensitive to contamination. About 65% of sports bras sampled also showed the presence of PFAs, especially over the nipple area. This, warns Segetti, is a particular problem for new mothers and their babies. Let's say you put the baby down and you're exercising, she says. Then the baby starts to cry. You're sweaty, you pull down that sports bra, and boom, you're breastfeeding the baby with a potential hazard. Tap water. The EPA has set water supply limits for only two especially toxic and common types of PFAs, the 0.02 PPT limit for PFOs and a 0.004 PPT limit for PFOA, (perfluorooctanoic acid. That still leaves some 12,000 other PFA chemicals unregulated. And since the EPA does not mandate nationwide testing of water supplies for PFAs, The concentration across the U.S. is unknown, but independent experts believe it to be high. Groundwater leaching from airports and military sites, where firefighting foam is regularly used, which has been found to be heavily contaminated by the forever chemicals, can become contaminated. Reservoirs fed by PFAs carrying rain can be toxified too. The EPA estimates that 70 to 94 million Americans are drinking tap water contaminated with some form of PFAs. Other researchers from the Environmental Working Group put the figure much higher at 200 million people. Whatever the actual number, there's danger coming out of the taps of too many Americans. And, warns Olson, switching to bottled water is not a solution. PFAs have been detected there too, either contaminated from the original source of the water or by the plastic bottle in which it's sold. Fortunately, some improvements are on the way. On March 14th, the EPA took action, announcing a new proposed regulation to eliminate four more of the most common and dangerous PFAs from the national water supply. Following a 90-day public comment period, the rule will be formally promulgated by the end of the year and water systems nationwide would then have three years to install filters or change the wells and other sources from which they draw their water to ones that are free of the targeted PFAs. And still more. The list of PFAs containing items in your home by no means ends here. There's also plumber's tape, By definition, it needs to be waterproof and PFAs provides that feature. Guitar strings, PFAs work as so-called elastomers, providing stretchiness and resilience. Candy wrappers, the PFAs prevent the candy from sticking to the plastic. Bicycle chain lubricant, the PFAs repel dirt and water and reduce friction. Microwave popcorn bags, the PFAs make the paper non-stick. Dishwater and laundry detergent, PFAs help to break down grease. And on and on. Of course, not every brand of these items necessarily contains the forever chemicals. And if you are concerned, there are a host of websites that provide guides to PFA's free products, including ones sponsored by the Environmental Working Group, the Center for Environmental Health, the EPA, the Natural Resources Defense Council, and many more. Careful research and selective shopping can limit your exposure to PFAs. Forever chemicals will be with us, well, forever. The best step now, say the experts, is to eliminate them from products as fast as possible and quit making the problem worse. They are going to be with us as a legacy, says Belcher, and we keep adding to that pile of pollution we're living in. Polypharmacy Killed My Son. He's Not Alone. By Andrea Sonnenberg. Sonnenberg is an attorney, speaker, and podcast host, founder of a literacy nonprofit, and author of Pandas Helping Paul, a children's book that shines a light on mental health and well being. Five years ago, my 21 year old son Bradley died of psychiatric drug interactions after years of battling anxiety, depression, and an eating disorder. In most respects, Bradley was very much like many kids you know. He was funny, smart, And talented, constantly making people laugh with goofy impersonations, and starring in school plays and musicals. We, me, my husband, and Bradley's siblings, deeply supported him in his challenges with mental health. He had access to the best healthcare available, but despite his privilege, we couldn't save him. At the time of his death, Bradley was taking a cocktail of medications prescribed by respected doctors. Bradley died unexpectedly in his sleep because of a practice called polypharmacy, the layering of multiple medications on top of one another, often without regard to what other doctors have already prescribed or the potential interactions between the drugs. Psychiatrists are prescribing medications more frequently than ever before. In 2017, the year Bradley died, Over 70,000 people died from some kind of drug overdose, including both illegal and prescription drugs. That number increased to over 100,000 in 2021. Medication was necessary in Bradley's treatment, but too many medicines in the wrong combination cost him his life. It is not uncommon for patients to receive psychiatric medication without being evaluated by a mental health professional. Often, a primary care physician will prescribe an antidepressant without considering various other evidence-based treatments that may be more effective and without possible side effects. There are also the financial incentives, whereby insurance companies are more inclined to pay for medications than therapy and at a higher reimbursement rate. That's not to say that medications can't be helpful. Often they are critical to treatment and produce miraculous results. But many medications come with serious side effects. When many medications are taken together, they can cause harmful drug interactions. Plus, there is the risk of taking the wrong dosage, either too high or too low, which can lead to potential withdrawal symptoms or accidental overdose. Additionally, the pharmaceutical industry in America has been very successful in marketing psychotropic drugs to physicians and the public through television, magazines, and billboards, a practice that is unseen anywhere else in the world other than New Zealand. In fact, many organizations in the U.S., including the American Medical Association, have called direct-to-consumer ads unreliable and misleading, seeking to ban them. A 2023 study featured in JAMA Open Network confirmed that over 70% of prescription drugs advertised on television were rated as having low therapeutic value, further bolstering public concern. Research indicates that prescription drug ads don't adequately explain side effects and can adversely affect decisions by patients and doctors. These ads play on patients' desperation fueling a vicious cycle of patients grasping at straws and doctors willingly trying yet another approach. Patients who requested advertised drugs were nearly 17 times more likely to receive a prescription than patients who did not request any drugs. It's easy to write a prescription, but doing so is not always the safest or most effective option for a patient. The psychiatric medications prescribed on a PRN basis, that is, to be taken as needed, are particularly troubling. One of the most over-prescribed types of these medications, and among the most dangerous, are benzodiazepines, commonly known as benzos. From mid-February to mid-March of 2020, prescriptions for them increased by 34%. While these medicines can be helpful in relieving anxiety, depression, and other symptoms, they can lose their effectiveness when taken on a long-term basis. Eventually, the initial dosage becomes ineffective, and patients come to need larger and larger doses to achieve the same effect. Within a few short weeks, patients can develop a physical dependence on them, ending up worse off than before the medications, struggling with addiction and withdrawal. Benzos can also have serious side effects, including respiratory depression, which can cause death. Stanford psychiatrist Anna Lemke, lead author of a New England Journal of Medicine essay, calls our overprescribing and overuse of benzos a hidden epidemic, which remains inadequately publicized in light of the raging opioid crisis. Even if we get the opioid problem under control, the benzodiazepines will still be there she stated in an interview. And then there is the problem of communication and coordination of care. Psychiatric patients' care is often so fragmented and piecemeal that the psychiatrist managing the patient's medication does not coordinate care with the patient's therapist or determine what medication the patient's healthcare providers have already prescribed. At one point, I asked Bradley's psychiatrist why he was on two medications that treated the same condition. His response was a non-response, as he directed me to ask his neurologist that question. And of course, the neurologist was no better prepared to answer my question. Not one of Bradley's doctors possessed a full picture of the breadth of his treatment. Too often, patients and their families are left to untangle the treatment process by themselves, jumping from one crisis to the next, addressing emergencies, but not doing the more painstaking work of addressing the deeper root causes. Besides a good match with a mental health professional, there needs to be a medication quarterback, someone who helps to coordinate care. Unfortunately, I found that coordinated and integrated care is the exception, not the rule, in the mental health field. I'm not a mental health professional, a lobbyist, or a drug company executive. I am just a grieving mother advocating for solutions to prevent others from suffering the way we did. Since my son's death, I have dedicated my life to helping others with mental health issues, and most specifically, to avoid polypharmacy deaths. In 2019, my husband and I started the Bradley Sonnenberg Wellness Initiative, partnering with USC Hillel to bring therapy and wellness programming to college students. We created a mental health curriculum that offers education and awareness to college campuses around the country. And I host a podcast called Getting Through, where I talk to young people struggling with mental health issues who have learned to successfully manage their condition. As a result of doing this work, here are some things I've learned we must demand the use of evidence-based treatments in lieu of simply prescribing multiple medications. These include cognitive and didactical behavioral therapy, eye movement desensitization, and reprocessing, a form of trauma therapy commonly referred to as EMDR, and mindfulness training. We must push leaders in healthcare and medical training for integration of more holistic treatments of mental health Into the curriculum, including greater focus in grand rounds and among physicians about developing more nuanced strategies to heal the patient. We must demand stronger communication between healthcare providers, especially when medications are involved. And we must reach out to our lawmakers to insist on relevant pharmacy and coordination of care legislation before this scourge affects and ends even more lives. Return to Office Full-Time is Losing, Hybrid Work is on the Rise By Alana Samuels You might have thought that by the end of May, with the pandemic officially over, people would be getting back to the office. But a new report suggests that the share of workers in office full-time is actually shrinking as hybrid work is growing. The share of people in the office full-time dropped to 42% in the second quarter of 2023, down from 49% in the first quarter, according to the Flex report, which collects insights from more than 4,000 companies employing more than 100 million people globally. Meanwhile, the share of offices with hybrid work arrangements hit 30% in the quarter, up from 20% the previous quarter. It certainly looks like hybrid is gaining share, says Robert Sadow, the CEO and co-founder of Scoop Technologies, which puts out the Flex report. There's an adoption cycle like any other technology. You have early adopters and laggards. Work is moving toward what Sadow calls structured hybrid, in which there are a set number of days that people are required to come into the office. The average minimum days required is 2.53, with both two days and three days being popular, he says. Tuesday is the most popular day required, followed by Wednesday and Thursday. Few offices require a Friday presence, and only 24% require a Monday presence. Of course, not all companies are going to accept that they can't get employees to return to offices for which they have to keep paying rent. Both Twitter and Tesla require full-time office attendance, and Apple is reportedly tracking employee attendance and threatening action against staff who don't come in. Workers at Disney are required to go into the office four days a week, though thousands signed a petition protesting the policy. Opponents argue that return-to-office policies disadvantage people of color and women who are discriminated against in person and make life more challenging for working parents who don't want to waste hours commuting and can't afford space near the office in today's housing market. The Flex report suggests that workplace flexibility differs dramatically depending on the company's industry, size, and location. Nearly two in three companies that have fewer than 500 employees are fully flexible, meaning employees can be remote if they want. By contrast, only 13% of companies with more than 50,000 employees are fully flexible, though 66% do allow for structured hybrid work. States in the west and northeast parts of the U.S. have the highest share of companies that are fully flexible, with Oregon, Washington, and Colorado topping the list. Arkansas, Alabama, and Louisiana have the highest share of companies that are full-time in the office. There are other signs, in addition to the Flex report, that five days a week return to office plans are not succeeding. The share of days worked from home at around 30 percent appears to have stabilized at about five times what it was before the pandemic, according to research by Nicholas Bloom, a Stanford professor who studies remote work. That could be a good thing for both employees and employers. One Bloom study found that people who worked from home were more productive and one-third less likely to quit than those who didn't. Office occupancy in the top 10 most populous U.S. cities was just 49.9% of pre-pandemic levels the first week of May, according to data from Castle Systems, which tracks keycard swipes across 2,600 buildings. One result of that trend is that consumer spending has plummeted in center cities in places like New York, Los Angeles, and Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, home values in exurbs and suburbs have continued to surge. The commercial real estate market hasn't completely tanked yet because many companies are signed into long-term leases. What's more, the format of structured hybrid work means they can't dramatically shrink their spaces yet. If every employee comes in three days a week, but they're the same three days a week, the company still needs the same amount of space as it did before the pandemic. It's just paying for empty office space on certain days of the week. Bloom expects the share of people working from home more frequently to only trend upward as technology advances. With better video calls, augmented reality, and virtual reality, there may start to be less of a difference from working in an office and being at home, he says. Office occupancy rates may go up to 55%, he says, but he predicts they'll start trending down again by the end of 2024. Thanks for listening to Time, bringing newsworthy stories to you since 1923. Check out time.com for more award-winning journalism.